Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina, and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. Okay, so I hope everyone's having a good summer so far. Not much housekeeping today, just want to say again a big thank you to all of our beta users for your feedback and everything else. It's been super great seeing what kind of thought spaces you all are building and putting Sane into all kinds of different use. For those of you who are new here, Sane is a tool we've built for collecting, connecting, and sharing ideas. You can use it to store your working notes, to share your projects, or to plant seeds for future ideas. You can have a play around with it at sane.fyi. As for today's episode, I'm happy to say I'm speaking with Andrew Huey. Andrew is an associate professor of humanities at Yale and U.S. College and the author of Poetics of Ruins and Renaissance Literature and a Theory of the Aphorism, reviewed in The New Yorker and translated into Spanish with Chinese, Greek, and Turkish editions forthcoming. His current book project on real and imaginary libraries in the Renaissance is under advanced contract from Princeton University Press, and a sneak preview appears in Critical Inquiry as Dreams of the Universal Library, an essay we discuss in length in this episode as well. In this conversation, Andrew and I talk about ruins and monuments functioning as collective memory. We discuss fragments, aphorism, and human humanity's attempt at collective intelligence through the Universal Library. We also talk about how classifying knowledge means shaping the world, what it means to read, and what it means to read too much, and the pursuit of knowledge as a way to build identity. As some of you know, all of these topics are ones that are very close to my heart. I really enjoyed recording this episode with Andrew. I hope your experience listening to it is equally pleasant. Now I bring you Andrew Huey. Okay, I'm here with Andrew Huey. Welcome, Andrew. It's really nice to be chatting with you again. Delighted to be here. Great. So as usual, let's start with uh, talking about your background a little bit. So do you want to summarize sort of who you are, what you do, and what your intellectual position is in terms of interests. Sure. Um, my name is Andrew Huey. Uh, my official title is um, Associate Professor of Humanities at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore. And Yale and U.S. College is a uh, partnership between Yale University in the U.S. and the National University of Singapore to uh, set up a um, one of the first liberal arts colleges in um, Asia. But my an official role is just I'm uh, a passionate lover of books and ideas, and I love to read, I love to talk to people, I love to uh, write, and I love to teach. So, um, and I my intellectual interests range uh, pretty widely, but I'm professionally trained as um, someone who does the European Renaissance, although I'm also interested in the classical traditions around the world. And what made you, I suppose, initially curious about ideas, about reading? Like, do you want to kind of shed some light on your personal processes in life that led you to uh, these curiosities and, and these interests? Sure. I can share a couple anecdotes. One is um, I'm Asian American, uh, which means that um, I, I was actually born in uh London, but um, I grew up in Hong Kong till I was age of nine. And from nine, my when I was nine, my family immigrated to the U.S. and eventually we settled in the suburb of Dallas, Texas, Garland. And um, when I was a teenager, one of the most exciting cultural events that happened in my hometown was that a local Barnes and Noble opened. Right, this was the early '90s, and this was the explosion of Barnes and Noble as a chain store. And um, 
I loved Barnes and Noble when I was a kid. It was the best place with the Starbucks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And uh, at this, at that time, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was this great outcry of how Barnes and Noble was uh, putting all the small independent bookstores um, out of business. And now that Amazon has virtually eliminated Barnes and Noble and physical book and uh, brick and mortar stores, there's now this newfound nostalgia for Barnes and Noble. But I tell this story because if you remember uh, the Barnes and Noble of the early 90s and you brought up Starbucks, was that every Barnes and Noble had this mural that had these great authors like um, James Joyce talking to Franz Kafka, uh, sitting next to Ralph Ellison, sitting next to uh, Virginia Woolf, right? And so when I first entered and I looked at the pantheon of these great writers, I said, oh, wow, I want to read and I want to be um, in conversation with these authors. So that really ignited my uh, passion for books and my uh, bibliophilia. So I went to St. John's College, um, uh, which is known as the Great Books College. I began in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Then uh, I graduated from Annapolis, Maryland. And what ignited me there was uh, just a deep engagement with the great books of uh, Western civilization, right? And uh, so the second anecdote I can tell is um, how I became a literary critic, right? The first was how I became a lover of books. The second is how this became my professional vocation. And one day, I remember very vividly, in my sophomore year, I wrote a rather mediocre essay on Sophocles' Antigone. And I went to uh, my professor, uh, we called him tutors there, and I asked, oh, what can I do to like become a better reader, a, bit, a better writer? And he said, oh, Andrew, you might be interested in this book by Eric Auerbach um, called Mimesis. Right? And uh, Mimesis, for people who uh, are invested in comparative literature, uh, is the foundational document of our discipline, right? Eric Auerbach was a um, exiled German Jew um, in the darkest hours of World War II, and he was uh, exiled from uh, Germany. He lost his job at the University of Marburg, and he fled to Istanbul, where he took a lowly paid um, teaching gig. Uh, but he, from the distance of um, the exile, he wrote one of the greatest masterpieces of literary criticism in the 20th century called Mimesis, the representation of reality in Western literature. And reading the first chapter, uh, which is entitled Odysseus Scar, was a revelatory moment for me. Right? I never knew that you could read a text in such a close um, and profoundly philosophical, aesthetic way, right? And so that really launched um, my path um, to, I guess, where I am today. Yeah, it's really interesting when you describe that because I have had many, well, not many, because it's not like these experiences come along every other day on like a random, (laughs) random Tuesday, but have had similar experiences that are so incredibly profound um, Mm. and so important. And it really is one of these sort of like nodal points that changes, you know, 
your life in a way and changes like helps you sort of take the next big leap in cultivating your identity and your personality. Yeah. So um, probably somewhat different, but I really what kind of, I think, Oh my gosh. I think, I think like the most memorable, memorable one was that I was reading um, Nietzsche's why I am so clever, you know, the tiny mm-hmm. little, tiny little, I think it's like a penguin random house book, yeah. you know, the, the collection of that. And it wasn't really even reading. It was like more, I think, like meditating on the words. You know, I was on an mm-hmm. airplane. I was flying from from Shenzhen to somewhere in in Thailand, and I was alone. And I was listening to music and kind of looking out at the clouds. And then I was looking at the words. It wasn't that I was just like flipping page okay. to page, but more sort of like meditating on individual sentences and and thinking about it. And there was something about experience, and I can't remember the quote about it directly, but I remember writing down as sort of like a um i guess uh, i guess a response to whatever he said in there that like um like existence or uh or experience is synonymous to existence or Mm -hmm. experience produces existence or something like that and it completely changed the way that i thought about a lot of things in life and it was really tiny and now it probably sounds a bit like weird and silly on a podcast because you don't have the context of the things right. I was thinking about before and after and what happened but just the moment and the feeling was so incredibly catalyzing for me that it actually changed the way that I thought about myself and the world and the way that I related with the world and it was so so simple and I think like the most sort of like interesting thing about it that it wasn't this like and actually we'll probably talk about this later it wasn't this like mania and reading as much as possible and trying to consume as much information as possible but it was more of a meditation on words a meditation on ideas and like the sort of um very calm like not overly consumptive way of relating with a piece of information text ideas knowledge anyway right. uh, that's really beautiful and i think it's moments like these what you call nodal points or uh, they form the stars um, of the constellation of the, that chart, the itinerary, that chart the paths of our lives. And we, when we look at uh, our life retrospectively, right, we're able to see in a much clearer way, you know, where we are and where we're going and where we've been. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I did a podcast with Jarl Spurkowski, who's the founder of Avrina. Uh, he was like in the first episode or second episode. Um, and we talked specifically, it was all about these nodal points. Um mm. And it was an it was an interesting one related to this conversation as well. But uh, so let's talk let's talk about sort of your your professional journey. I know that you've um, you've studied and and written a lot about ruins and and then about aphorisms and then about dreams of the universal library. So do you want do you want to kind of give some context as to why these why these topics what they mean to you mm-hmm. why why they're important and how they relate to one another. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, you brought Nietzsche already, and to compare the great with the small, uh, Nietzsche at one point, I think it's the genealogy of morals or beyond good and evil, says uh, it is something like, and I'm paraphrasing here, it has become apparent, uh, 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 slowly clear to me that uh, every great philosophical endeavor that we embark on is um, but a hidden or secret autobiography, right? And so uh, I do believe that, um, especially in, in academia uh, and in humanities, right, um, everything that we do is somehow a mirror of the soul or it's a mirror of 
the culture and the times that we live in. So my first book, which is a revision of my dissertation, uh, which I completed um, at Princeton in the Department of Comparative Literature, was on the poetics of ruins in Renaissance literature. So um, I've had this lifelong uh, fascination with, um, I guess, uh, maybe uh, things that are uh, broken, things that are decayed, or things that are very old that come to us um, in a mutilated form or something like that. Um, and how this book got started was um, I was in Rome one summer studying Italian, and I had a J Japanese classmate, and we decided to take a walk in the Roman Forum. Right, And uh, suddenly she turned to me and said, oh, Andrew, why are there so many ruins here? Why are they not uh, rebuilt or uh, just destroyed? And this was a, um, another um, catalytic moment for me, right? Then I began to ask, you know, why uh, is there this European, Western fascination with uh, ruins and uh, decayed monuments, right? Is it uh, exclusively a uh, Western European thing, or do other cultures partake of the same obsession, right? So this um, was the genesis of my first book, uh, The Poetics of Ruins in Renaissance Literature, in which I argue that the Renaissance was the Renaissance, right? It was the birth mm -hmm. of ruins as objects of uh, contemplation and um, artifacts uh, that could be recovered, that could be deciphered uh, that could be revivified in a way, right? So uh, that is um, the meaning of renaissance, right? The rebirth, right? And uh, But it's a rebirth uh, that comes to us uh, in um, the obsolete grandeur of antiquity uh, that survive only in fragmented forms. And so from fragmented architectural forms, I thought, about literary fragments. And so uh, then this uh, began my second book project, which is um, on a theory of the aphorism from Confucius to Twitter, right? Um, aphorisms are one of the um, most ubiquitous and the most ancient of uh, literary forms, but it is also one of the most contemporary, right? We live in an age of Instagram, of TikTok videos, of uh, Twitter, of um, uh, instant gratification, right? And uh, everybody talks about how we've lost our attention span, that we can only uh, get things in five-second bites or something. So, um, the aphorism is the most ancient and most venerable of uh, this, um, I guess it's a verbal Instagram uh, in a way, right? <laughs> uh, and so I began to think about why is it that in so many um, liter literary, philosophical, and religious traditions at the origins, um, there were lots of aphorisms, right? Uh, think about Confucius, think about Buddha, Think about uh, Jesus. They spoke in a lot of proverbs, short sayings, right? How are they transmitted across time? How are they circulated? How are they preserved? How are they interpreted uh, throughout the millennia, right? And so, um, in a way, the aphorism forms a not insignificant cornerstone of so many cultural traditions. 
that still survive today. Uh, that's that's really interesting. I love the verbal Instagram thing because also it's something that when you were talking about that that came to mind was these greeting cards that you especially had in, yeah, the, exactly. in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was a child, and it was be so fun to look through them yeah. because there would be so many, and with exactly. like the most cheesy short sayings that signified so much. So, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, and, and what's um, what I'm also interested in is how um, we never just read one, or we never possess, you know, just one postcard or one reading card, or we never read just one tweet or um, Instagram or uh, Facebook post, right? They exist in a multitude. They exist in the collectivity, right? It's like uh, consuming a potato chip, right? You can't just eat one, right? And so uh, in our contemporary culture, there's this obsession and this addiction to the endless scroll, right? To the uh, self uh, repeating, um, self updating uh, feed. Right. And so I'm interested in the relationship between the singularity of these microforms as well as their collectivity in its aggregate form, um, in its uh, multiplicity. Yeah. Which is, and you also talk about monuments functioning as collective memory. And maybe that's Mm -hmm. some kind of thread that we can draw from what we've been talking about now to talking about well your ideas about monuments functioning as collective memory and mm-hmm. and then therefore going maybe into the concept of the universal library and our obsession mm-hmm. with creating creating i don't know a total uh, what would you call it like a total place of knowledge or yeah. a total collection like an mm-hmm. all universal all-knowing collection of information of truth right. of ideas so what do you mean by monuments functioning as collective memory yeah, um, I mean, I'm not the only person to uh, believe this. Um, there's a French historian theorist called Pierre Noha, and he has this uh, idea of lieu um, uh, de mémoire, or uh, places of memory, sites of memory, right? And I think, in essence, what this means is whatever a culture values the most, they build monuments to, right? Think of the Middle Ages. What were the um, biggest things in the villages, towns, and cities. It was a cathedral. It was a church, right? Um, every European capital you go to, right dab in the center, are these um, towering um, monuments to God that uh, reach out to the heavens, right? In um, the 18th century, that was replaced by civic centers, right? Town halls, um, capital buildings, right? And uh, in the 20th century, uh, we have the advent of skyscrapers. And uh, the skyscrapers uh, are the uh, vertical, um, secularized cathedrals uh, of today that are dedicated to commerce, dedicated to the god of mammon, right? the god of wealth. Right? And so you can, so uh, architectural monuments chart um, this, uh, our cultural values which chart our social worth and our social collective memory. And uh, from, you know, the earliest empire, there has been the idea of a total archive or a collection that gathers, that ingathers uh, everything uh, 
in the world, right? Uh, this is from the Library of Alexandria, and there were actually lots of um, libraries before the, the Library of Alexandria. That just happens to be the uh, most famous one. Um, in the early Chinese empires, the first Chinese emperor, he burned lots of uh, Confucian texts so that he wanted to eradicate the memory of the past so that history would begin with him. All right. Mm -hmm. So uh, somehow in the collective memory of both uh, Asian and Western civilizations, uh, one of the first libraries, uh, the moment of creation coincides with the moment of destruction. Right. Again, the Library of Alexandria, the myth of the Library of Alexandria, that it was a totalizing uh, collection in which the scribes copied uh, every book that uh, each uh, ship entering into its harbor um, had. Um, but that uh, myth of uh, copying of replication is intertwined with uh, the famous burning. Right. right? Uh, so. Uh, it's the myth of both uh, genesis and annihilation. Right. The same thing in uh, early China, where uh, the Han Dynasty, you know, copied and recopied uh, lots of Confucian texts, but then Confucian texts throughout uh, the centuries were uh, mutilated and destroyed um, because for for whatever reasons, you know. Yeah. So um, what? is the idea of the universal library. And just, just for context, Andrew's written an essay uh, called The Dreams of the Universal Library, which is incredibly beautiful. I definitely recommend everyone to go read it. So uh, would you want to summarize the idea behind that essay, um, why you wrote that essay, what what's the sort of like central thesis of it? And, and then, yeah, we could talk a little bit about sort of humanity's attempt at collective intelligence, collective wisdom, which has been also a big topic on this podcast, and where we preserve and collect collective intelligence, um, which is nicely having to do with, with your essay as well. Sure. Um, I guess one way to think about the Universal Library is by thinking of the biblical myths of the Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark, right? Why is it in the beginning of uh, Genesis, after the fall, uh, human beings attempted to uh, build an ark that contained all the animals of the world. Uh, why is it that we came together to build this tower so that we could uh, reach out to the heavens and to become God in a way? So uh, in a way, the Universal Library is the Tower of Babel secularized, and this is our attempt to know everything, right? And this is an attempt to... Um, transcend our mortality, uh, transcend uh, the um, inevitable um, second law of thermodynamics, entropy, right? So uh, people of all cultures and in all histories have attempted various versions of that, right? We've mentioned the library of um, Alexandria already, uh, Tower of Babel, and today, uh, what is Google and what is the internet except this um, digital dream of the universal library? So in this um, essay, which you um, kindly uh, cited, and um, thank you <laughs> for your very um, warm words, uh, it was published in Critical Inquiry, the spring 2002 um, issue. I look at three moments. I look at um, uh, this 
text by um, the German philosopher Leibniz. He was also a polymath. He was a mathematician. He made uh, really um, foundational uh, contributions to uh, the development of calculus. Um, but he was also um, a librarian in the court of Hanover. And in one of his uh, texts called the Theodicy, uh, the end of it contains this vision, in, uh, which is one of the universal library. Uh, then um, I mentioned um, the Tower of Babel already. One of the my favorite 20th century writers is Jorge Luis Borges, who's an Argentinian writer. Um, and he's almost kind of indescribably brilliant and erudite um, and of immense learning. So it's hard to kind of um, summarize what his contribution is in, in a few words, just like it's almost impossible to say, you know, uh, who Kafka was. But in, in any ways, he wrote these uh, short fictions in which one of the most famous is the Library of Babel, in which uh, uh, instead of this perfect utopia that Leibniz en envisions, the Universal Library becomes a complete uh, hellscape, right? It's a place where we get lost in, it's a labyrinth time, there's just too much to know, and we start losing our mind, right? And uh, in a way, the history of the internet mirrors this. In the early days, people thought this was the greatest invention since uh, the wheel or the printing press, and in many ways it was. Right? It brought people together. It's bringing us together now. Right? Without the internet, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. But now, you know, post-Trump, post-Brexit, in the era of fake news and uh, data manipulation and government surveillance and corporate malfeasance of big tech, uh, the internet is looking less utopian, right? Uh, there are uh, real dangers to it. And uh, so in many ways, the internet and all of social media becomes a library of Babel, where the confusion of tongues reign. Yeah. And there's disorder. I mean, you're preaching to the... You're preaching to the choir with that one for sure. I mean, yeah, and there was a, I wrote down a part that um, that you wrote in the essay that says, how does a library as an institution combine data, and in parentheses books, and metadata, in parentheses bibliography, to put books on a bookcase in whatever order is to classify knowledge, and to classify knowledge is to shape the world. And I wanted to talk about how that reflects on the world that we live in today um, and the way that we navigate an informational abundance within our digital worlds, because it is, in fact, reality that we don't have a lot of autonomy when it comes mm. to that at all. We are being fed very specific, uh, very individualized, actually entirely individualized mm -hmm. digital realities. Um, so we've we've kind of, in a way not in a way entirely lost the autonomy <laughs> in some ways, um, especially if we are participating in certain social platforms uh, and engaging with big tech in that way. So the reading the essay was really interesting because it was, I mean, did you say you wrote it in 2002? No, no, no. Um, no, I, I wrote it in 2022. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> this year. Uh, yeah. Maybe yeah. that was a <laughs> Um, anyway, it felt extremely timely because you didn't directly really even cite the sort of like reflections of the, of the modern world, but it was mm -hmm. reading it and being so, um, 
felt <laughs> by how extremely like how extremely real everything is without you even directly mentioning the kind of like um yeah the the relationship with with what our current you know world is like at the moment mm-hmm. um we've talked with many guests on the podcast before about this idea of pursuit of knowledge as a way to build identity which we kind of referenced earlier um i wanted to just ask you know what your thoughts are on that um I think we become sort of autonomous individuals in the modern age by cultivating, cultivating knowledge. And also going back to the essay, um, Mm -hmm. there was a part with Wenders, which, which is, was the film now, like Wenders angels. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That Uh, it it was a quote, sorry. Yeah. The wings of desire, right. It was the wings of desire. Yeah. Mid eighties or so. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there you cite that Wenders angels demonstrate that you can have either complete knowledge or human freedom, but not right. both. Right. Um, so I wanted to just get your sort of open thoughts around this idea of the pursuit of knowledge as a way to build identity and this phrase that you can either have complete knowledge or human freedom, but not both. Yeah. I mean, one of the most persisting myths of Western modernity is that of Faust, right? Uh, Faust famously is um, the person who sold his soul to the devil uh, for a finite period of absolute knowledge and uh, complete power, right? But who was Faust? He was originally a uh, professor of theology from Wittenberg, the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation, right? So uh, there is a danger to knowledge because uh, knowledge is power and Francis Bacon uh, taught us that, right? That's also another uh, foundational proposition of modernity. And uh, power, uh, here is kind of a proverb, power uh, corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And uh, this uh, book I'm currently writing in which the critical uh, inquiry article is an offshoot of, of is really thinking about the uh, genesis of the personal library or the study, right? I'm in my office right now. Most uh, people, if they have the means and the education, uh, will have a little study or a little uh, nook, reading nook or a library in their homes, right? So I'm really interested in the genesis of um, individual autonomy that's afforded by the privacy of uh, space, and, you know, we all have our um, safe spaces. And for lots of people, it happens to be our library or our study, right? Uh, you could call it a man cave, a woman cave, whatever, right? <laughs> and so as you said, yes, uh, knowledge uh, shapes our individual identity and our autonomy. You also said that how uh, we operate in the digital age is that uh at the opposite end of the screen, every time we open up our social media feed, and I'm not one of these people who abstain from social media. I actually get a lot of benefit um, out of it. Uh, but are some of the brightest minds on the planet trying to manipulate us and trying uh, to make us uh, click, uh, scroll, uh, swipe, right? And so uh, we don't really have autonomy at all. We become addicted, right? And so um, the uh, analog version of this is how bibliophilia, the love of books, turned to bibliomania, the uh, how you're driven mad by books, right? And so um, besides uh, Faust, uh, 
the Faust myth, which began in the 16th century. The other great myth of the 16th century was Don Quixote, right? Well, early 17th century, right? So you're living in Barcelona now, and um, Don Quixote is a national um, symbol, a national hero of uh, Spain and, by extension, Europe at large. Um, Don Quixote is a bibliophile turned into a bibliomaniac, right? He believes, I mean, he spent so much time in his personal library in La Mancha that he became crazy, right? And how did he become crazy? He was so besotted by the uh, chivalric romances that he uh, read that he wanted to become a knight errant. He wanted to revive this medieval myth that never really existed and bring it into uh, the into early modern Spain. So, uh, you know, the long short of it is that he confuses fiction for reality, right? And I think uh, this confusion of fiction reality is uh, something that plagues us even today. Right? People have confused fiction stories, myths, and reality since um, the dawn of the human imagination, right? Yeah. And so uh, what I'm interested in in is seeing the uh, both the continuum as well as the ruptures uh, of um, these long-standing patterns in the human intellect and the human imagination. Yeah, I mean, I would say that in the modern world, we don't exactly have an issue with people reading too many novels and going mm -hmm. a little crazy with that. It's more right. an issue with Instagram filters yeah, and, yeah. and the mm -hmm. <laughs> and how that distorts reality and perception yeah but i mean novels uh were the instagram and social media of uh, the pre-modern world right it, from the um advent of the printing press to madame bovary right to the early you know early 20th century you know uh people were addicted to novels and literatures and, and so forth and um you know it, maybe in, in the 50s and 60s then people were saying oh the kids are watching too much tv right and he goes, oh, oh, the kids are uh, listening too much to rock and roll, which is corrupting their souls, right? So uh, every age has their bugbear, right, in which becomes the um, addiction of choice. Yeah, but I would say that in this case, it's something uh, a lot more dangerous, just like looking at, you know, studies about what being addicted to social media and how much time you spend on social media yep. does to your brain. It's something yeah. like there's some studies that show that you are destroying as many brain cells as if you're addicted to cocaine, mm -hmm. as if you're mm -hmm. like heavily addicted to certain social media platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates real sort of even physical diseases yeah. and changes in your like in your brain and and a lot of things that reading too many novels, I'm pretty sure you would yeah. have to read way too many novels yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to get to any kind of level of like that that level of um, distorted perception and reality, but yeah, I uh, uh, completely agree with what you're saying, and I really hear you. Um, and I mean, as a case in point, just this morning I'm rereading Don Quixote because I'm revising this chapter of this book I'm writing, and it was really hard for me to, you know, go through a page. And this is a novel that I've read, you know, um, many times, and it was still like. And it's 900 pages, right? And so yeah. um, our attention span have been completely fractured uh, and fragmented, um, especially since, uh, you know, um, after the, as we're emerging from the pandemic, as we're kind of uh, taking our tentative steps, you know, in a 
um, post-COVID um, world, we're, we're living with, um, uh, you know, this disease. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, um, again, kind of going back to back to how uh, reading and the exploration of ideas and knowledge can actually be the sort of counter medicine to that. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, going into going into literature and trying to sort of organize it and even using technology and tools um, to do so, but using them really as tools and not as um, this sort of like digital reality of full immersion mm-hmm. where you're in a different dimension, but just using technology and tools is a way to, I think, actively combat that and, act, right. and just, just feel right. better. So, yeah. And I don't think um, any of us really have a solution to this mess that we're in, which is, as you said, psychological, um, as well as political, as well as environmental, right? Yeah. I think uh, so many of the crises in our world are related. Yeah. Yeah. A sick society. <laughs> no yeah. one can try to start yeah. healing. Um, but I think this might be a good place to end. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation? Is there anything that you would want the listeners to know um, from your work? Um, do you have anything upcoming, previous um, previous uh, things that you've written, worked on that you would recommend in light of this conversation? Uh, no, um, thank you so much for this invitation. It's been a real pleasure um, talking uh, with you. And uh, I guess if I could just you know summarize um, a little bit of my intellectual uh, trajectory through my publications, it's you know first I began to as I said, to think about ruins. From ruins, I thought about fragments, and from fragments, I thought about uh, aphorisms. And uh, now I'm turning the other corner, and first I spent some time thinking about, again, um, forms of dispersal, um, forms of scattering. And now I'm interested in gathering, in uh, collections. And so um, after this uh, book on libraries, I'm also really interested in museums, and I'm also really interested in zoos, and how uh, zoos are, you know, a um, library of um, animals, and museums also have this universal impulse to collect everything under uh, one roof, right? So I think uh, it's important for us to think about microcosms and macrocosms and scale. Yeah. And how... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say like something that uh, came to mind when you were saying that is also thinking about like the way that we gather and in what places and how and with what information on the internet, because there's a lot right, of exactly. like right. interesting things with the idea of, you know, um, the cozy web, for example, if you, mm. if you know that term, it's like, no, it's I this, it's this um, term coined, uh, coined by Venkatesh Rao, who's um, mm. a brilliant writer about technology mm. and, and culture that basically refers to this idea that we have sort of like the large public podiums, which is that of like us being on Facebook or Twitter and Mm. announcing things to sort of like the world, the public Mm. and screaming into the void more or Mm. less. And then we have things on the other side of the spectrum, which is like the cozy web, like the way Mm. that we gather on discord channels and Slack groups and private WhatsApp groups that we're sort of like, and it's a comparison. It's a really interesting comparison of thinking of where we gather, what kind of information we collect there with Mm. whom do we choose to participate in these places Mm -hmm. versus the public. So I think you can do a lot of like really interesting comparison between the sort of Mm. physical world uh, when Mm -hmm. it comes to collection and and gathering ideas and also the digital world, because there is so much of the spectrum there as well. Yeah. And I think um, 
uh, in a previous conversation, we were talking about uh, what you called like digital gardening or something. There was yeah. uh, someone uh, whose work you've been engaged with uh, is talking about that. But one phenomenon that's somewhat like this is how, um, you know, during the pandemic, there was this explosion, this proliferation of uh, these vibe channels on YouTube, which is like, it will have like four hours of like, oh, like a um, cozy little Manhattan coffee shop in which you could uh, work or a cozy fireplace in Scandinavia, right? Or listening to um, softly falling rain on an autumn <laughs> day, or right? And so um, there's an um, explosion of these uh, sites on the internet, uh, these digital sites that mimic reality, right? Which is a symptom of our hunger for reality. Yeah. Right. And so in a way, it's still um, back to the problem that we talked about, you know, the confusion of um, fiction and reality. Right. This mimetic principle to conjure a uh, mood, to evoke a vibe or uh, to recreate in the digital space the ambiance of reality. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like one of the reasons that I absolutely cannot stand the idea of the metaverse, but I think that's a conversation rabbit hole we don't want to go mm. down, down right now. Um, but I know that we're running out of time here. So Andrew, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah, I'm looking that. forward mm-hmm. to to uh, reading more of your work and, and seeing what you come up with next. So thanks. Really pleasure thank having you. you on.